Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking. I'm really glad you could join me as in this episode, we get a chance to speak with David Mates. And we have a great conversation about what it was like to grow up as one of 10 children, the legacy of having an all black for a father, as well as what he's learned working across a range of industries from agriculture to retail and health. I enjoyed this conversation because Seeds is all about going a little bit deeper with people and finding out more about what motivates them. And if you do too, then why not check out some of the 319 other interviews in the back catalog? If you want to find out more about the project, there's a website at theseeds.nz, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Just one reminder, I've started a second podcast called Board Matters with the Institute of Directors, so there's a link in the show notes to that as well. It's a brand new podcast talking about governance and leadership, and if you like Seeds, I think you'll really enjoy it. Now let's get straight into this conversation with David. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome David Mates to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. No, it's really lovely to join you, Stephen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I think we're going to have a lot of interesting topics to talk about. But before we get into what you're doing today, I always like to go back in a time machine and find out about people's histories. So in your case, could we go back to say when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was life like? Well, I was born and bred in Christchurch and um, part of a family of <coughs> 10 children, of which uh, eight are girls. And uh, so very early on in life, I managed wow. to learn my place. <laughs> that's a lot of mothers. <laughs> that's a lot of mothers, but yeah. also a lot of really strong and opinionated mm. um, individuals. So one of the things growing up in a large family, you need to learn to listen mm. and to navigate a whole lot of different views and different perspectives. Yeah. And uh, just a wonderful array of thinking and sometimes you do wonder whether they came from the same parents but uh it's yeah it, that's been a, ri- a really rich part so you know four years of age um you know kind of a young boy uh seventh in the family and uh navigating navigating a large family yeah that's yeah. amazing it's actually so rare these days to to come from a large family like that like yeah. i think i do a lot in family history and if you look in you know 100 years ago or 150 years, it was actually pretty common to have those much bigger families, although partly it was probably because lots of the children died at young age, you know, yeah. you needed to for survival rates. But yeah. Yeah. It was really funny growing up that uh, we never saw ourselves as a particularly large family, right. except when we went on holidays, um, because we had a number of quite large families in the neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. But going on holiday, getting 12 people into a car uh, was an interesting uh, exercise, and you know, um, the pillows and the blankets would be laid on the back seat of the car. The four oldest girls would, would then sit on that. Right. Then the four youngest would sit on their knees. I see. Then mum and dad and the other two would sit in the car. Wow. In the, in the, in the front <laughs> of the car. Yep. But whenever we stopped to get out, there was always a crowd watching with amazement of the this endless stream of kids getting out of yeah. this car. How did but actually more in? interesting in terms of how do they fit it back in. Right. And it was just... Um, so did you have your assigned places you knew where you went? Assigned places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's yeah. An amazing. Yeah, well, 10, that, that's... That's getting up there. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And and your parents, had they come from Christchurch themselves as well? or 
No, um, mum was from the North Island, mm-hmm. um, Palmerston North, and uh, dad was originally from the West Coast. And uh, they'd both met through Teachers College. And uh, both were very, um, you know, were top sports people of their uh, generation. Mm-hmm. Um, Dad was a an All Black, and also just after the war was part of the New Zealand Kiwi team that um, toured through Europe and the UK as part of the post-war uh, rebuilding program, mm. and um, then toured South Africa in 1949 and uh, played against British Lions in 1950. Wow. So what what was it like growing up, maybe just thinking about the legacy of your father having been in those teams and things? Like, was it something you were conscious of as a young, you know, young boy growing up? It was, it was strange growing up. All I wanted to do when I was younger was play rugby. And Dad would not let me play rugby until I went to secondary school. And part of the reason for that is um, he'd seen too many other fathers in particular put so much pressure on their kids to succeed at sport. And he did not want to... Um, have that pressure applied. Hmm. So ended up having to play a whole lot of um, other sports, and particularly soccer at the time, um, until I got to secondary school. But the flip side of that is um, everyone knew that Dad had been a uh, you know, kind of really famous All Black, mm-hmm. um, so the pressure automatically came on that, therefore, I must be good at rugby. Right. And uh, I was one of those, uh, it, it's a really good example sometimes how the um, skills jump a generation. <laughs> so <laughs> yep. so I'd, um, I'd end up playing rugby and senior rugby and, and one representative um, game for the West Coast uh, before I managed to um, break my wrist. And that was the last game of rugby I played. So that was my, that was my test match. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine though, and I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking as well about the, you know, it's an, that legacy, I guess, from the, your parents and what they achieved. And then the natural assumption, well, if you're the son of this person, then you, of course you're good, you know. But um, I learned probably more about my father um, after he died in 2001, and I was doing a course over in um, Oxford in the UK, and there was this um, coloured African professor who was running the uh, leadership course, and it sat down and he, you know, kind of asked the name, and um, he he had this puzzled look on his face, and he asked a few questions, and the next night over dinner... He just looked at me and said, I know your father. Hmm. And kind of sat back and thought, I have no idea how you would know my father. And he said, I grew up with a picture of your father in the slums of Johannesburg. And Dad was one of three All Blacks in, uh, that stopped the 1967 tour to South Africa because he had been to South Africa in 1949, a year after apartheid, and that had really impacted on him. Hmm. And um, so... This coloured African professor described growing up with a picture of my father um, in the slums of Johannesburg, and they saw these three um, All Blacks as um, um, basically helping bring their cause, their uh, injustices to life. Hmm. And it's one of the things that's really impacted on me is that the impact that people can have and be absolutely oblivious to that. Because mm. for Dad, that was always a point of principle, mm. that it was not okay based on race, and in this particular case, Māori unable to tour um, South Africa. It was not right. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that whether fortunately or unfortunately, has become such an important part of me, mm. 
is actually doing the right thing. Mm. And Dad paid a big price for that mm. uh, because at the time, an All Black standing up and coming out and saying this is not the right place for um, All Blacks to be touring mm. uh, was not the popular view of the time. Mm. The other thing about that story is that that person who you met, you know, that that was unknown to your father. Because I think so often you, you think about the actions that you take or the, the thing that happens, and you don't know what the impact will be. And you may never know. Yeah. It may be decades down the road that your son meets the person who then, you know, had some inspiration. Like Ab- Absolutely. And, and again, it just reinforces that we don't, you know, all of us have an impact mm. in the world. Mm. And most times it's not obvious. Yeah. And an impact both good and not so good. Mm. Um, but that ripple effect... Yeah. Right across the world, we all have an impact. We're all so, you know, so interconnected in one form or other. Yeah. I've been thinking more recently about the analogy or the picture of a spider web mm-hmm. and the fact that a spider web, it's all interconnected, right? And if you touch it over here, it's going to move over here. And I think in a way, humans, you know, the, the fact that we're all interconnected and the fact that your father's action there then had this effect over here that then one day later, decades later, <laughs> yeah. you would be having dinner with somebody who said, I know who your father was, and, yeah. and he impacted me. Well, it was interesting in terms, he didn't use the term, I know who your father was. Okay. He said, I know your father. Ah. And that, that was an interesting, it was an interesting just construct, is that it, was, um, it had made such an impact within this community. Mm. They saw, them, saw him as one of them. Mm. But you're absolutely right. Um, he'd never met mm. any of these ones. Yeah, which in a way is encouraging to those of us trying to make impact <laughs> in, a, in the sense of we may not see the impact, mm. but if we act in the right way, then the impact will flow. Absolutely. And there's a great proverb, you know, it's very well known, but you plant seeds of trees that you won't sit in the shade of. Mm. And it's that long-term philosophy, isn't Absol- it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But it also highlights it's sometimes really hard to do the right thing. Mm. And, you know, kind of know at that time, you know, Dad was a teacher. And uh, very much the, you know, kind of the sense is your teaching career is now finished. You've, you have kind of almost betrayed the country mm. by standing up for something that is right. And again, that element, sometimes doing the right thing, it's not the easiest pathway. Mm. But yet it's so important that mm. people do come from the basis of actually, is this the right thing to do, as opposed to, is this the popular thing to do, or is this the easiest thing to do sometimes? Mm. Yeah, that's really good. So as a child growing up in that environment, were you aware of his standing up for these things? Like, were you old enough where this was making a... No, at that time, I was uh, kind of, um, yeah, kind of being young and stupid, you kind of, (laughs) um, you know, kind of less aware of those um, sort of things, and... Um, you know, kind of like any you know, kind of young um, boy growing up uh, into the sport, the outdoor um, life. Mm. Um, life was pretty simple, straightforward. It was more about what was happening, you know, kind of either today or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, not much thought beyond that. And I think as you get older, sometimes reflecting back on the things that have impacted or influenced you, uh, you're much more receptive uh, to that. When you're young and the world is yeah, kind of the world's an adventure and out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you think less about mm. um, yeah, kind of the impacts or necessarily the 
um, the contributions or sacrifices people have made mm. at particular times. Mm. Um, I think as you get older, you become a lot more aware of that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think you're probably right. And I think for lots of us looking back at our parents, there probably was a lot of different pressures, you know, whether it's work pressures or economic or whatever that they went through that as a child you, you were just yeah. oblivious, you know. Well, yeah, kind of with 10 kids on a teacher's salary. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, kind of mum was the most amazing person with, with money and you know, she could make it right. stretch every which way. Um, Dad would teach, then he'd be um, teaching three nights at night school right. uh, during the week at the um, TAB on Saturday and during the summer holidays or the holidays be working at the post office. Um, so that that element of always um, the you know, kind of the pressure to provide and have enough resource to um, raise a large family uh, was really important. Having said that, we grew up in a really um, big um, big section, mm. um, so most of our fruit and vegetables were all homegrown, right. and that was a really important part of um, yeah, kind of helping provide, helping sustain the family um, by growing um, much of their own food. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I love finding out about people's backgrounds and their histories and, you know, 10 yeah. children, that's a lot of siblings. So thinking about your primary school years and kind of heading up towards, say, age 10, were there subjects that were standing out to you that you enjoyed more than others? Or, yeah, paint a picture of what sort of a child you were. Um, <clears throat> I think... Mum and Dad were conscious of growing up in a large female family that uh, certainly making sure that there's a bit more male influence um, yeah, kind of uh, in my life. And uh, so ended up um, going to um, an all-boys um, school, uh, Loreto College in Christchurch. And, um, and then most holidays, um, some very good friends of Mum and Dad's been in Ishbel Glass. They had um, um, a farm down in South Canterbury. And I spent most of the holidays um, down um, um, at my sense they're working on their farm um, I think they're very tolerant and very generous uh, <laughs> but um, absolutely to love, love, developed a love of um, farming hmm. and that was something at that particular point uh, shaped um, a lot of the thinking later on where I ended up at Lincoln College doing agricultural science degree. Oh, interesting. So, so what, that was part, that was a major, major influence. Yeah. yeah. What was it about farming that, that jumped out at you that you liked, even at a young age like that? I, I think it was the animals. It was also um, the machinery, the the growing, you know, kind of being able to, you know, uh, seeing crops planted and then harvested. Right. And that whole, you know, kind of sense of, um, you know, Planting through to um, you know, kind of producing something mm. that um, I guess that was a bit of a fascination as of starting to understand systems or organic systems, and I think that was the other bit that's actually had a big influence on me in terms of system thinking. Um, that there's a whole lots of inputs. It doesn't matter what industry, what sector. It's how all the different inputs that come together mm. that affect the out, you know, kind of an outcome or an output. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I um, called this this podcast seeds, and I love the picture of a seed because it looks like it's dead. Yeah. But if you plant it and if you give it water, nutrients, sun, you know, the right conditions, 
then it will grow. And, and it's so like people, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, exactly. And I've always viewed seeds. It does. It feels a little bit magical. You yeah. know, like it, Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, like the seed, you plant it in the ground and then wait a little bit and woof, there's a, a living thing has come out of what looked like it was dead. Yeah. So. And, yeah. Cause one of the things that does yeah, kind of stick out was um, um, my older sister was about to get married and um, end up making, yeah, kind of... Um, Helping create a uh, a wedding gift for um, her and her husband, uh, which was basically uh, a lamb scum that um, had um, been part of raising the the lamb. Also, then um, you know, kind of the um, treating the the pelt and curing the the pelt and turning it into a um, sheepskin rug. Mm-hmm. And so again, that sense of uh, being able to. The, you know, the importance of whatever you grow or um, whether you plant or um, grow in terms of it going to something that's got mm. a got a that's making an impact or has has got a particular or fulfilling mm. a particular need. Yeah, and it strikes me what you're talking about is sort of organic. You know, like these things are naturally happening; they're naturally growing crops or animals or yeah. whatever. And um, you know that there's consequences of taking steps to then get. A result, absolutely, and, and and everything is so interconnected, and 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 the ability it starts. You, know, you start reflecting on actually the impact of choices and decisions that have both on the environment or, mm. um, you know, kind of all the surrounds, mm. but also you know the amazing array of skills and experiences that I was exposed to mm. uh, with the, um, you know, from about six years of age through to I was about fifteen. Um, just about every holiday, wow! I was down on, uh, down on this farm in South Canterbury, yeah, and so felt very, very much part of of that. Mm. So I guess I'm I'm hearing where this is heading. So <laughs> the next question in terms of high school, you know, you're coming to the end of high school. That was what you wanted to pursue. You, you well, knew that at that point. Or? I was, I was, I was, um, it's kind of a yes and a no. A, a lot of my friends at school were um, finishing up at the fifth or sixth form mm-hmm. and going into apprenticeships, and I decided then that I wanted to be a builder. And I think uh, both mum and dad, both having been teachers, were very clear that um, I was going to go to university. So, um, I th- you know, kind of, uh, as, you know, with that, um, that was where I ended up making the decision um, to go to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was part of the University of Canterbury. And um, right. so I did an ag- agricultural science mm-hmm. uh, degree there. Yeah. And so what does that involve? What what aspects of agriculture you're studying? Or is it a really broad-ranging sort of course? Yeah, br- broad-ranging. Yeah. Um, and it, it really comes from the whole basis of actually, you know, kind of right from the environment through to growing and producing um you know, whether it be livestock or soil management, um, through to the uh, you know, kind of the economics of um, of farming, mm-hmm. um, so very much you know kind of the wide range, yeah. wide range. So when I finished at Lincoln, um, my first job was actually as a farm advisor on the west coast, mm. um, and that involved a lot of you know working with both um, dairy, sheep, and beef. But also uh, involved in a lot of uh, land restoration, uh, following mining, and there's a lot of gold tailings and stuff like that that were you know, kind of 
you know, kind of leaving a pretty awful scar on the on the landscape, and starting to work with um, the agricultural sector in terms of how to return land back into something um, at that stage, whether that into productive farmland or being replanted into some sort of regenerative um, planting. Hmm. And what era was this? What, what sort of decade are we talking about? So um, that was 19, um, as a farm advisor, 1985 to 87, yep. and uh, got married in between. And um, 1987, um, I was playing rugby on the coast and, and um, ended up breaking eight wrist bones. And that was the last game of rugby I played. But part of the grieving process was... Um, um, at that time, um, Julie, my wife, and I um, made the decision to go travelling. And um, so the first time out of New Zealand, we uh, ended up landing in Harare hmm. in, um, in Africa and spent the next six months uh, travelling um, up through some of the most wonderful parts of the continent. And uh, we ended up getting as far as Nigeria. Uh, but ended up in hospital there for a couple of weeks mm. in a, um, with a, a parasite and then flew to London and um, was back in an infectious diseases hospital there for a few weeks while they were trying to work out what was happening. And we'd only intended to go overseas for a short period of time, but we spent the next six years mm. uh, living in the UK. Mm. And again, um, I ended up working for a, a big high street uh, retailer um, you may ask, well, what's that got to do with farming? But, um, <laughs> they, uh, they at the time were Marks and Spencer's major competitor. They had um, 190 stores throughout the United Kingdom and Ireland, and they had 97 in-store restaurants. Now, they were looking for something, someone different, and somewhere along the way I convinced them that actually an agriculture science degree was just a bit further down the food chain. Right. Um, <laughs> so I ended up running... Um, one of the largest in-store catering operations um, at uh, 26, 27 years of age, wow. and um, which was just the most wonderful experience, absolutely knowing nothing about restaurants, right. but actually a really big cook chill um, operation. I was just fascinated with the, the way that it worked, but a core part of that was also the focus on the importance of customers. Right. And the director I was reporting into, um, he ended up taking over the home furnishings and um, lighting part of the um, the business. And, that, and BHS at the time, they were one of the biggest um, in the market in the UK. Mm. So ended up working um, you know, with the buying and merchandising teams and then ended up as the national marketing manager. Right. And all on the basis of a wee bit further down the food chain right. from an agricultural science degree where <laughs> I'd done one marketing um, paper as part of the agricultural science degree. Here I was, the national marketing manager for a uh, big retail chain. Yeah. Um, well, we'll come back to that in a second. I'm curious, when you left New Zealand, what took you to Africa? How, how did you choose to start there? Um my wife was she was very keen to go travelling and um, particularly through um, Europe. I had absolutely no interest in travelling. Right. Um, I could have I could have actually settled on the west coast and um, been quite happy mm-hmm. and content. And um, and growing up, I'd read a lot of books about Africa and and um, in discussion one night, I just said, oh, you know, not really that keen on on Europe, but what about Africa? Right. 
and um, Julie, to be yeah, to, uh, yeah, kind of to her credit, just said, yeah, absolutely. I think it was just uh, finally I've got him to say yes to go travelling. Right. <laughs> and there it started, just an absolute love affair with travelling. Hmm. Yeah, kind of, uh, we have been to some of the most remarkable places uh, kind of throughout the world and it's just been mm. um yeah i just love the 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 different cultures the different diversity but also being off the beaten track mm. Mm. it's interesting because sometimes we do particularly as kiwis and i have an accent but i actually grew up in christchurch you know this is my home mm. i think we often talk about the oe and just go for a year or something but i have a similar story to you and i went for one year that became 11 years yeah. and i ended up in japan australia the uk so it is a kind of a, a story isn't it as yeah. once you're once you're away you think well maybe we'll just go over here for a bit and yeah no, let's just try over there for a bit but it's amazing the sort of opportunities that just kind of open up mm. that you're not looking for yeah um but and I, and I think it is one of the you know the elements of um, you know, kind of Kiwis. Um, we're sometimes really hard on ourselves in, our, in you know, kind of our own country, mm-hmm. but actually the rest of the world really values the attributes mm. that um, Kiwis often um, exemplify. Yeah, yeah, that ability to put the hand to anything. They work hard. Often the basis of working hard was to save enough money to go travelling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in that, you know, and, and really reliable in terms of being able to deliver mm. um, whatever needs to happen. Yeah. Do you think as well, though, like what you're saying is true, but I'm just wondering if you're overseas, are your eyes open to opportunity in a way that they wouldn't be if you were in the city that you grew up in and you had a reputation or, you know, established? Because I do wonder about that if by by getting out of our context, we're then all of a sudden more aware of, oh, there's an opportunity, and then being willing to be a bit adventurous and grab it. I I think it's a yes and a no. I've seen a number of people that have travelled overseas and they have stayed in Kiwi Mm. flats and basically really just worked and played with Kiwis. And you think sometimes... Why have you bothered? Yeah, you could have done that back in your own, um, you know, kind of in your own town. Mm. The experience for a number of those sort of people, absolutely no different. Mm. Then you get others that actually this world opens up, and a world of opportunity. And and I think of partly on a scale where you can be anonymous, mm. you can be almost whoever you want to be. Mm. And I think that's incredibly freeing and exhilarating. Yeah. So I think for some people, it's that. And for other people, it's, um, you know, they really don't experience, mm. um, I, I guess, the excitement or the, you know, the energy of being somewhere else. Yeah. They've just taken home and repeated it or, um, you know, um, mirrored it mm. wherever they've ended up. Yeah. And for you, that overseas experience, when you're away, did you feel a stronger sense of being a Kiwi overseas? Like, or did you feel like... Yeah, did you have a sense of one day I'll go home? Or was it more, maybe we'll just stay here in the UK? Um, No, there's always a sense that we would come back. Mm -hmm. But the longer we ended up staying, that started becoming a wee bit more um, challenging because um, you become become a lot more embedded in the place that you're at. we consciously lived with lots of different uh, people that were, um, you know, kind of from a whole range of different cultures. Mm. Um, and I think our oldest daughter was uh, born in the UK, and that was a that was a 
kind of a big decision. There was a tipping point of saying, actually, do we want to raise um, family mm. um, in the UK um, or head back to Australasia? And probably at that point, it would have been more to Australia right. necessarily than New Zealand. And that was more in terms of size of opportunities. Mm. And that's where um, part of the farming background um, interfered uh, with. And, and we were just heading off um, to go to holiday to Norway and the phone uh, went. And I'm not sure whether I, I regret going back and picking up the phone, but there was this farmer that I'd done a lot with years ago. Just said, um, He was on a board with um, responsible for a number of the hospitals over here. Mm-hmm. And he said, have you ever thought about running some hospitals? Right. And it was a time <laughs> when New Zealand was looking at bringing people from the private sector into health I to see. try and sort out this what was seen at the time as a mess of health, mm. just a big black hole where money was going into and no one knew what was, um, you know, there was no concept of value for money or any of those mm. sort of things. And that was kind of the accidental bit from right. farming to retail to health. Yeah. Um, all quite different um, industries, but yet all of them very, very similar yeah. in terms of they're all systems, all complex environments that have lots of different moving parts and not always an easy or obvious solution. And I think that's something that, if I go right back, is something that I've always found really intriguing, interesting in terms of gnarly problems of actually how you solve them. Yeah, It's really interesting as an independent person hearing your life story to think about what happened there because I'm just wondering if you had gone from farming, you know, like this is what I do, I got my degree in farming, and then you'd been given the opportunity to go to health, whether you would have been able to make the leap as easily as you had like an intermediate step, which is farming to retail yeah. and then over. Like you'd already experienced some shift in career to then move to yeah, another. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right. The, 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 retail, the retail experience in the UK was one of the most amazing experiences. Mm. Um, at that time, the, uh, the um, a marketing director who I was uh, reporting into, um, she was really at the bleeding edge of um, moving away from age as you know, kind of segmenting markets to attitude. Mm. And so, you know, kind of, um, you know, 90-year-olds that had the attitude of a 16 or 17-year-old. And what did that mean in terms of fashion and um and the equivalent of uh, young people sometimes had very old attitudes um, sitting there. Mm. But the other bit that was really important was the involvement in the consumer or the customer in concept design through to product delivery. Mm-hmm. And I think that element in terms of how do you engage the end user in co-designing product right. or outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that there in terms of... Um, the the inputs or the the expertise that was involved sitting around that was something that um, just blew my mind. Mm. The yeah, you know, kind of the power of the consumer, the power of the citizen in shaping what it is that they needed. And I think that there was probably one of the most remarkable experiences, mm. and that fundamentally impacted on the way that I um, saw being involved in health. I see, yeah, because. Health also um, needed to refine its way back into its purpose mm. was actually serving the citizen, the person at the centre of a system, and um, that was part of my journey then in health, of starting to reimagine 
what a health system should be. And it was not the way that it was constructed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in a way, what we're talking about is quite deep philosophical concepts. Because if you think about it, if I'm the maker of widgets and I make a thousand widgets and I go out and sell them and they're, you know, yellow and green, and then um, you either buy it or you don't, you know, yeah. there's no there's no feedback loop. It's just, I made this thing and the, the retail will either buy it or they won't. But the more sophisticated is getting the customers to say, well, I don't like that color. I don't like that shape or whatever. And tweaking your design and then meeting the need and it is yeah it's quite a different framing of how you approach things isn't yeah, it yeah it is yeah. yeah so that um you know the you know when it first arrived at um, bhs the they would decide on product two years before it hit the shelf okay so if you got it wrong um it's a lot gone into it <laughs> it's, it's a long lead time so we ended up with the yeah, kind of the reimagined way of looking at things where the supply chain got down to six weeks from product being produced to the shelf. The only thing that we couldn't change was the colour palette. But if product was not selling within six weeks, you could have new product uh, replacing what was already there. So that was, at the time was really radical in the way of, mm. of again, yeah, kind of imagining imagining things yeah and i was i was yeah really fortunate with the with the lighting um area i was, I was seen as a boy genius for a uh, for a moment in time and um because they used to sell lamps and then plugs separately and so you'd buy that and then you'd have to go home and screw right, the plug to it. it right and i just come from new zealand kind of thinking well we buy a lamp with a plug on it why don't you get the suppliers to put the plugs on? Right. <laughs> the sales boomed. And it was kind of just one of those things in terms of... The right actually, time, the right idea. <laughs> it's sometimes common sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of just think, kind of, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and But maybe it takes that outside perspective to point it out. <laughs> and, and, and I think it did. And yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of people were going, wow, this is great. And I was sitting there going... Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> and, yeah. and it's those moments you feel a real fraud. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody knows that back in New Zealand, this is yeah. awesome. <laughs> it's, it's normal. You always, if you buy yeah. a lamp, you've got a plug on it. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's great. So where did um, that work in the health sector, where did it take you? Did you come back here to South Island or was it? So, um, yeah, we came back to um, actually the West Coast. I was here for, uh, there for 12 months. And that's also in Cave Creek. Um, happened. So my first introduction to health was, um, again, connected with a, uh, at that time, a large mm. disaster. And if I really understood then that I was going to be faced with a whole range of disasters going forward, I might have also backed out of health. But mm. um, So I was on the coast for tw- uh, just over 12 months and then um, in the Hawke's Bay and involved putting Napier and Hastings um, hospitals together, then um, involved up in Northland, um, for four years, and then the Wairapa. And the Wairapa was a really remarkable time because um, there's a wily old chairman up there who had me under his you know, kind of wing in terms of... He was he was the, the president of the Inter- International Institute of Management. He had um, two IC and IBM International um, you know, kind of previously. He was really well connected. But he was absolutely committed to, gr- to governance and also growing leadership. 
and the four years I spent, um, you know, kind of working with him, I couldn't have paid mm. to um, be exposed to the knowledge, the experience, and um, and yeah, you know, the skills and the opportunities mm. that that he provided. Mm. Sounds like he was quite a generous person in like sharing knowledge and uh, helping incre- incredibly grow. generous, and, and and was always came from the basis that you know, kind of he articulated many times in terms of um, the importance of relationships, and when he. Um, headed up the Asia region, Asian region, region for um, IBM. Basically, saying you, you sign a contract and you put that in the drawer. Mm. The only time you pull a contract out is when the relationship has failed. And again, just reinforcing the importance of people, connections, relationships, mm. and they're the fundamental parts of um, of collaboration. Mm. So that you know, kind of that was the experience in health, and then I had my arm twisted to come down to Canterbury mm. and Canterbury um, and that was the uh, beginning of 2009 and Canterbury was seen as a problematic region by the rest of the country it was had a warring board uh, management clinicians the hospital and primary care were at each other's throats mm. and the community was no longer trusting its health services and um, the bit there of actually stepping into a very challenging environment. And uh, we set down a pathway of actually reimagining what a health system should look like. And over the space of about 18 months, and this was before the earthquakes um, happened, mm-hmm. we had built a, um, a shared vision of what the health system would be mm-hmm. that actually had the person at the centre, a connected system centred around people that aimed not to waste their time. And that core simplistic vision was something that thousands of people in Canterbury were involved in creating. Mm -hmm. That sense of actually this is why we're here. And moving away from the focus from professional silos or organisations to how do we organise ourselves around people. Mm -hmm. And that ended up resulting in, um, you know, um, we ended up creating in um, Canterbury what is still regarded as one of the most integrated systems anywhere mm. in the world mm. and um, it has been so studied and people have tried to um, copy that mm. internationally yeah um, so because what would you say um, I'm just curious because I don't know a huge amount about that mm. particular area what would be some of the principles that you were saying would were undergirding or the foundations for what was built yeah so they're the bit of actually um, you know, a person at the centre of the system, and we are, you know, kind of we created a persona called Agnes, who is actually, a, you know, kind of at that time a real individual, eighty-five-year-old woman that lived in Christchurch. Right. In terms of whatever decisions we made, Agnes was always in the room. Yeah, you know, kind of. Um, what would Agnes um, think? Yeah. The bit of um, again, one of the most important bits is saying, if you put the person at the centre. That's where, for, for most people, their um, health and well-being starts and finishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can get the right support mechanisms in place, fewer people will end up needing to go into hospital. Mm-hmm. And so the consequence of that is that in Canterbury, you are 30% less likely to be admitted into a hospital compared with anywhere else in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and the well-being of the community... Um, tangibly and measurably was better than anywhere else in the country. Mm. Um, interesting enough, we had that in place and then we had the earthquakes. And that was probably the biggest 
test mm. to see what we saw emerging was that real or not because it's pretty easy to believe your own BS mm. um, at times and that was a really important part of actually could we have a system response that was going to um, mean that the health services in Canterbury would continue despite mm. the earthquakes mm-hmm. and indeed it's um, it not just stood up to that it flourished mm. um, in that yeah, so the key is people at the centre. That's the, the core. People, people you, at the centre, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have people at the centre and come from the basis of what's the right thing to do, mm. um, you don't often go to the wrong place. Mm. I really like the idea of, um, you know, pres- presumably you're sitting around a boardroom table, you know, and you're making these high-level decisions and should we do this, should we do that, and then having in your mind like, okay, we're turning to this empty chair which the person who were, you know, Agnes, if she was here, what would she say about our plans to do this or that? Yep. Like, it, it's, a, it's a pretty good sanity check, isn't it? Yes. Like a it reality is, check. But it's, it's, it's a great way of actually um, um, anchoring everyone back to the mm. core purpose. Mm. And it's amazing it takes so much angst out of decision-making. Mm. Yeah. Is this the right thing to do? Mm. And does this make or support Agnes to be better? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really and great. If, and if not, then why are we doing it? Yeah. Um, well, I just see that that's applicable to other industries or other sectors as well. Because mm. if you're asking that question of the person who's not in the room, what would the impact be on them? Or, you know, it does change your focus, I think. Instead of the focus on, you know, in a business context, like the next quarterly profit report, you know, yeah. like here's how are we going to return more to our shareholder if you're actually thinking in a more holistic way about what we're doing and who's at the table but who's not at the table mm-hmm. and how do we make sure that we're, you know, thinking about them as well. Yeah, and they've yeah. got a voice in every decision. Yeah. So talk us through the next few years because that obviously the earthquakes are traumatic <laughs> time. Yeah. Um, I, at the time of the earthquakes, I was actually living in Tokyo. So you may remember yes. that we had the Christchurch <laughs> earthquakes and then my parents were living in Sumner. So I came back to visit them and help them clean up the house and all like all of us, you know, had damage. I flew back to Tokyo, and then literally a couple days later, there was the massive <laughs> nuclear reactor and all these other things happening. Yeah. So I had a sense of, you know, what the earthquake was. Um, but yeah, just maybe talk us through the next, I guess, decade of, mm. yeah. Yeah, a, a, a really challenging decade, but also a really exciting, stimulating um, decade. Mm-hmm. Um, challenging, you know, in terms of health, we lost 44 buildings that we used to work and operate out of. Um, however, we had a system that brought into the concept that we were going to do whatever it took to make sure the community uh, were not going to be under any more pressure and that they would have a health system that they could um, trust and deliver on. Mm. So remarkably, that, well, the health system should have imploded, mm. and it didn't because of the integration journey that we are already on. Mm-hmm. And we did not miss, of all the district health boards over the next decade, we're probably the only district health board that actually delivered on all of its targets, mm. in spite of, and yet we had every reason not to. Mm. Now, the flip side of that is people then thought, oh, things can't have been that bad down here. Um, and that's always one of the challenges, is at times, reflected back as, would it have been better to have let the system fail? Would have caused a lot of harm to the, um, to the community, mm. but actually every bit of resource would have got thrown into it. Mm. Or... The direction of travel we took in terms of, no, we're going to do what's right for the community. Mm-hmm. 
And as a consequence of that, outsiders kept on thinking it can't have, it can't have been as bad because actually the system should have fallen over. Right. Yeah. And so it's an interesting bit in terms of sometimes doing the right thing can be really, really painful. Mm. Um, the, um, through that time delivering um, the New Zealand's largest infrastructure um, program of um, rebuilds, of builds that were all designed in our design warehouse that involved the public clinicians of coming from a person-centred design concept. Mm. So all of the health facilities built in Canterbury and on the West Coast are unique. They're very, very differently designed. Mm. And again, from the involvement in the end user um, in terms of how facilities should design, how they should work for them. Mm. Um, and that's not always an easy journey with central agencies mm. um, that have a don't necessarily support any um, rebuilds um, happening and the second bit in terms of this is not the way we do it mm. yeah um, I can imagine that there would be preconceptions about this is the, the floor plan of a hospital you know like yeah. this is the way we do it yeah. we've done it for decades yeah. this is the way and I think what you're talking about as well it, it resonates a bit because I interviewed Stella Ward um, yeah, okay, a while yeah. ago now yeah. I think it was 2017 or 2018 and we were talking about because um, she was very involved in the IT side of things and like what would a hospital of the future look like? Yep. Like, if we could get in that time machine and not go backwards, but go forwards, I bet you a hundred years from now that the facilities and you know what is offered to patients and how how things get delivered and you know the the notifications, all of those things are going to be very different. So, can we push things on that direction? Right. Yeah, and generally speaking we continue to look to the past mm. to solve problems of the future yeah. and then wonder why the solutions of the future don't work because yeah. all we've taken is yesterday's thinking put a new set of clothes on it and called it a future mm. but it's no it's it, it's the old way of thinking and so part of this was fundamentally reimagining how hospitals should work mm. and um, and in an integrated way with technology with um, both patients and staff, yeah, kind of um, integral to the thinking and the design and the layout. Mm. What has been fascinating is um, the couple of central agencies battled every step of the way to try and um, roll this out. <laughs> roll it out. <laughs> yeah. um, but we ended up getting it across the line right. and delivering it. And um, it's it's a concept that has now been picked up in a couple of places in the US. Mm. Um, it's it's fundamentally different, but it's so got people at the centre mm. um, of it. Mm. And through that decade, you know, we ended up with more earthquakes and then fires and floods, the um, terror attack um, sitting here. And, and the terrorist attack, you know, I think the eighth largest mass shooting in the world. Um, I don't think Christchurch quite understood, or New Zealand really understood the size and scale mm. of that. It's the equivalent of the third largest mass shooting in the US, mm. uh, which often, yeah, that's not often what people no. uh, presume. Yeah. However, the outcomes that were achieved here from the clinical teams are better than any of the major um, specialist trauma units in the US or the UK. Yeah. So part of that came from the very generalist um, approach that uh, we took here in Canterbury, mm. but um, ended up with some absolutely remarkable um, outcomes and survival stories. Mm. 
And um, again, just the incredible pride of the teams of the way they responded worked in a, in, in a way that was based in a system that was uh, based in a really amazing culture of we will do what it takes to achieve the very best possible outcome. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? Culture is something that is really interesting to me, particularly because we're talking about, for those who aren't aware, this is like a very big organization. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people. How do you think um, boards of governance or people at this level can have that culture change or how you know it can be rolled out in a way that if you talk to somebody here doing what seems to be a menial task, they might be able to come back and say, well, people are at the center. Hmm. Any thoughts on that? So one of the, one of the big challenges uh, stepping into here, because you know, a workforce of about 12,000 and then another eight or 9,000 people working in parts of the health system that we either fully funded or partially um, funded, the... The one simple thing about building culture is you cannot you cannot tell people what and how they're going to do things. What we set about doing was getting a clear sense of where we were going to. So our vision with you know a connected system centered around people that aim not to waste their time. We became better at defining or describing problems as opposed to symptoms. And what I mean by symptoms is that often is where the noise is, you know, kind of people flapping around. And we often try and fix all those sort of things. And then inviting people in to solve the problem. Right. Now we were to, And with that, um, we became pretty skilled at not naming a solution. And it may sound a bit counterintuitive, but I've woken up in the middle of the night with some of those brilliant solutions. And you kind of then go about thinking, oh, this will be great, everyone will see the brilliance of this, and then get puzzled with why no one else can see the brilliance of it and start explaining why all the reasons why it won't work. And that was something I learned early on in life, is that if people can't see themselves reflected in the outcomes, then they'll go out of their way to make sure that things don't happen. So the flipping that round in terms of inviting people in to, to co-design and to create the solutions was the most incredible way of, of pulling all these warring factions together and uniting them around a common problem. And when they're involved in solving it, they'll walk across broken glass to make the imperfect perfect. Mm. They will make it work because actually they are part of and they can see themselves reflected within mm. that. That in itself starts building a sense of can do and a sense of being given permission to do the right thing. And I had a permission card um, that um, we had a, a two-week immersive program that we had about um, 1,800 doctors, nurses, um, allied health and managers uh, go through, um, which they, we immersed them in chaos theory and systems design and thinking. And, and they were also um, responsible for delivering a significant, um, a significant program of work. But they graduated with that with a permission card from me as the chief executive saying, you have my permission to change the Canterbury Health System. Hmm. Now, they didn't have the ability to commit any resource to that. It was more about, again, the theatrics of, you know, so often things don't happen because of these invisible rules. I'm not allowed to do this. Or hmm. if I do this, someone's going to beat me around the back of the head. Hmm. And what we wanted to do is change the way that 
you know, um, t- was to unlock a very traditional conservative organisation to one that actually didn't need to seek permission to go to the toilet or to, um, mm. if it's the right thing to do, do it. Mm. And so that was a really important part of enabling people to do the right thing. Mm. And to me, when you start building that and the behaviours of leaders and the behaviours of the board becomes really important there because they need to be then maddeningly consistent. Because if they say we want to, you know, kind of to create a different culture, and we want a, you know, kind of engaged workforce, and then we behave differently, um, that's often where organisations go wrong. Mm. So if you're building culture, you've got to behave, you've got to be consistent, and it's got to be credible and believable. And people need to look to their leaders or their governors, and know that actually they have their back covered. Mm. It is safe to do. And I think, to me, that's one of the core components of leadership or governance is creating the environment for those that work within it to flourish. Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I do quite a bit of work with the Institute of Directors who are very focused on governance. And one of the themes that I notice coming up, recurring theme, is the tone is set by the board. Yep. And if you can get the tone right at the board level, then there is a, you know, a trickling down or you know, other people see, okay, that's how it happens. And I like the idea that you wouldn't just be told, well, that's the way we do things around here. You know, like that, that you're actually giving people permission to question and to say, I actually think we could do this a bit better. Yeah. And that that then is what leads to the innovation. Right? And the bit of, um, you know, talk about before, uh, wastage of time. Um, that became, that substituted money. Because people can relate to wastage of time. For patients being bounced from GP practice to um, yeah, the 24-hour surgery through to hospital or to an outpatient appointment. Mm. And people suddenly think, well, I was only there for a couple of minutes and no one seemed to do anything. You know, yeah. My time hasn't been valued. The other side of that is, um, and so if, if you look at designing systems that take out that wastage of time, there's an incredible thing happens. It becomes the most cost-effective way of doing it. Mm. But it's mm. not the focus on money. It's the focus on valuing patients' time. Sure. The flip side of that in terms of staff's time as well is they can understand, they see the stupid things that get in the way of them doing the right thing. Mm. So focusing on actually removing wastage uh, is something that people can connect with. Mm. But if you're saying you're doing this to save money, People's eyes glaze over, mm. and it's it's no longer about me. It's about actually those people up there. They're just wanting to, you know, kind of um, cut services or wanting to do X, Y, and Z. And whether it's got anything to do with that is not the point. It's actually how it's interpreted, how it's understood, or the experiences that people have had in the past where that sort of language has generally resulted in pain. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really good. It's fascinating to hear about the. This is why I do these long-form interviews, because I love the tracing a life story and hearing about the agricultural side and then the retail side and then the health side and, and then looking for the links between it and thinking, okay, that's it's probably originated back in the retail side when you were 
looking at products and how mm. do we service the customer and then you know bringing it through forward so um, I'm curious about what you're up to today so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the transition from what you were doing and then I'd love to hear a bit about your decision you know to to be running for mayor as we're speaking now before the election so mm. I'm just curious about that the point of the podcast isn't to define a moment in time so much as to understand a life story but having said that it's always good to hear from people you know what they're involved in so yeah. Yeah. So finishing up with the uh, District Health Board at the end of 2020, um, I spent um, uh, nine months over in the UK and working with the um, NHS um, where they were looking to adopt a lot of what we developed in Canterbury, um, which is a bit surreal at times where New Zealand is going a different direction right. um, <laughs> than the UK, or they're going the direction where the UK is trying to move away from. Uh, so that was a wee bit surreal. But while I was over there, um, ended up getting calls from a number of people just saying what I consider standing for mayor. And again, it was probably a bit of my reaction to years ago to say, you know, have you ever thought about running hospitals? It's kind of what? You know, kind of, I, I did not wake up one day and think, actually, I want to be the mayor of Christchurch. But what they were describing is a sense of, you know, kind of a city that um, where trust and confidence is is kind of been a bit precarious, uh, particularly in relationship to the um, to the council and its connection with the community, and a sense of a different style of leadership um, probably been important to the next journey of uh, or the next phase of the journey of Christchurch, and building off a lot of the collaboration and connections and working with communities that um, had done pre yeah, previously with the District Health Board. And um, and that's, yeah, I did a bit of soul-searching and a bit of reflection on that. And um, somewhere in the middle of the night, I ended up on a Zoom call dropping my head, and I think people at the end of that took that as a yes. Um, so that was, um, you yeah, know, Part of the reason, I was always returning back to Christchurch and um, this is a place that I don't think sometimes Christchurch understands how how many attributes it's got, how much um, opportunity it has at its back door and so many other parts of the world would absolutely die to have what Christchurch has got. Mm. And to be part of actually helping to see this place absolutely flourish, to create a different story about itself uh, that's no longer defined by disasters, but a city that's forward-focused and confident. Mm. And one of the things that's really struck me um, is those in Christchurch, they can describe what Auckland is, they can describe what Wellington is, they can describe what Queenstown is, they can describe what Christchurch used to be, but they can't describe what it is now. They can kind of see there's a lot of cool things happening, but we don't know who we are. Um, but we kind of know we're a bit grumpy, but we haven't got that sense of being able to describe for ourselves quite who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a really exciting bit to be involved with unlocking. Yeah, so you think there's maybe a... You've used the word reimagining yeah. in, in other contexts, so maybe a reimagining of what Christchurch is. Yeah. yeah, making sense of all of the really wonderful things that are coming together. And to get to that point, so what does this mean for us? Mm -hmm. Not others telling us what we should or what Christchurch is or what we think, um, yeah, kind of, um, yeah, the, yeah, the city is. More importantly, what do we think it is? Mm. What do we see 
and want to see reflected of ourselves in the mm. city. Yeah. yeah. And you've mentioned a couple times, in particular in the health side, that it was a people-centric approach. What does that mean in the context of a city council? <laughs> you know, and, and what is a people-centric approach? I'm, I'm presuming, based on our conversation, that that continues to be a, a major principle that, so would, that would guide you. So. A core part of a council is actually there to serve its people. And so therefore it needs to be well-connected and engaged about people. Its purpose is um, to enable a community and society to, to flourish. And I think that's one of the challenges and opportunities is actually how to get the council be much more comfortable being outward-looking at partnering and collaborating with its community. Mm. It doesn't have to try and solve all the problems. Mm. There's some incredibly smart and talented people that live in this place mm. that really want also to be part of solving some of the problems and challenges. Yeah, it just makes me think, because as you know, there's a lot of rebuilding which is going on right now. There's a lot of amazing new buildings. There's also a lot of empty lots and, you know, things haven't gone up yet. But if you could give every citizen a permission slip of you're helping to write the future, you're part of this story, it might change the attitude, do you think? Yeah. Could well do. Oh, look, I, I've been absolutely stunned with the hundreds and hundreds of people most weekend that are involved in planting natives across the red zone or in the Port Hills, um, um, Banks Peninsula, that parts of the community wanting to be part of creating and, and involving and bringing to life an environment they're, they're wanting to see. Mm. And I've just been absolutely amazed at people absolutely gifting their time and wanting to do mm. um, is the more that we can unleash support and enable that sort of contribution from a, uh, from a community, we're going to end up in a pretty good place. Mm. I agree with you. I mean, I think you must see it out talking with a lot of different groups. So there's amazing things that are going on, little pockets of innovation or care or reaching out native tree planting or other things. Um, this um, podcast I've interviewed now like 320 people. And the thing that strikes me, because they're basically all Christchurch-based people, is the amazing work that is going on out there. But very often we don't hear about it. It we, is so invisible, isn't it? It is, And And, yeah. um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that it's, it's amazing where you see it, you know, whether it be through business or innovation or you know, kind of some of the community groups that mm -hmm. are dealing with some really challenging situations. But stuff they're doing is just absolutely um, you know, brilliant. But yet as a city, it's not part of our narrative. Mm -hmm. It's not part of what we're seeing. It's not a part of what we're feeling. And I think that's one of the, one of the challenges and opportunities to start creating a different story about us actually being proud about the place we live in. Mm. It's a, it's a, I think it's a valid point because the reality is that cities do change over time, places change over time, and we can have default narratives that we sort of by osmosis pick up. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it becomes the narrative, which it could easily be if you focus just on the disasters, all of a sudden that starts to infect the talk yeah. instead of innovation. And because if you talk, I do a lot with startups and there's an incredible amount of innovation going on. Yeah. There are tech companies here that are world leading, um, but it's easy sometimes to 
maybe forget that. So, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, not, it's not even so much forgetting about it. It's actually not in our consciousness to forget. Mm. Um, so somehow we've got to get it into our collective consciousness. Mm. And you're absolutely right. This, you know, the, some of the startups, some of the innovation sitting in this place is, you know, it is world leading edge. It is making an impact on the world. Mm. And yet we don't, we don't know about it. We don't understand it. It's not part of our story yet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a book um, that Peter Simpson wrote. So he wrote about the arts in Christchurch in the 1930s and 40s. And there's a great quote, which I read out at these lunches I host called Impact Lunches. And the quote basically says, the writers were encouraging the, the, the artists. The artists were encouraging the playwrights. The playwrights were encouraging, you know, and you get the sense of this environment in Christchurch at that time was full of, you know, Alan Curnow and and um, all these amazing mm. painters and authors and writers and people doing this cool stuff. And it was a community that supported each other. And I've often thought, like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could redevelop that sort of a culture that went that transcended just the arts, that it actually became about business people supporting each other and not in a competitive scarcity mindset way, but in a regenerative we can actually collaborate sort of way. Um, and, and that's the thing is it, it, it's all about us to create the future rather than be handed it. And this is the, the slogan or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the bit that actually, I think we're at a really critical point as a city, you know, and I think our collective challenges, are we good enough to take the next step? Mm. Because we have got no excuse not to. Well, David, I've really appreciated having you on the show. Um, it's been fascinating to hear your life story and hear about your childhood here in Christchurch, you know, growing up, what it's like to have a famous father <laughs> who plays rugby, but then also that um, journey that you went on leaving New Zealand and then your eyes being open to, well, got agricultural background, but now I'm moving into retail. I'm in retail, now I'm moving into health. And so there's kind of a natural progression there, I think, of actually, you know, the ability to, to switch careers or move across sectors. Mm. Um, but I've also been really interested in that concept of people-centered, you know, that ultimately we're asking the question for the person who's not in the room, how is this going to impact on them as well? So thank you so much for your time. I know it's busy at the moment, so really appreciate it. That's um, been a real pleasure. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. Probably the highlight for me was hearing about what he's learned learning across a range of sectors, and in particular, that idea of having a people-centric approach. If you enjoyed this interview, then why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog, as there's more than 300 of those. There's also a website at theseeds.nz, and a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, plenty of ways to connect. And for those of you who are interested in governance and leadership, don't forget that I've started a second podcast with the Institute of Directors, where I speak with really experienced directors about their lives. Until next time, kakite